Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. Cynthia Albrecht, the executive chef of the Penske Marlboro Racing Team and darling of the IndyCar circuit, went missing on October 25, 1992, the night before her divorce from Michael Albrecht became final. Drivers and racing crews from across the country converged on the Brickyard, site of the Indianapolis 500, to help search for her. As the head mechanic for the Dick Simon racing team, known as Krabby, across the race circuit, Michael had a reputation for bullying and abuse. He'd immediately become a suspect in Cynthia's disappearance. But with a strong alibi, there was nothing authorities could do when he decided to take a vacation to Florida and skip a scheduled polygraph test and the search for his estranged wife. Nor could law enforcement charge him when Cynthia's body was found a few weeks later in northern Indiana, minus her head. The case went cold for six years until a newly elected prosecutor allowed his deputies to charge Michael Albrecht with murder. But would they be able to prove his guilt? This true crime legal thriller written by one of the prosecutors, Larry Sells, and journalist Margie Porter runs at full throttle and will leave you on the edge of your seat right up to the checkered flag at the final verdict. The book that we're featuring this evening is Race to Justice with my special guest, prosecutor and author Larry Sells and journalist Margie Porter. Welcome to the program and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview. Larry Sells, and Margie Porter. Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you very much, Margie Porter and Larry Sells. Now, first off, Margie, tell us uh, as a journalist how you came to be in a position to write this book, Race to Justice. I, I have to say that God was blessing me because I don't think I could have ever found this story by myself. Um, I was in a writer's group working at that time with a judge on some children's books, and Larry happened by our writer's group at Barnes & Noble and was talking to the judge, and he ended up joining our writer's group because he wanted to write this book. Well, he liked my work, and uh, eventually he asked me to write the book, and I was, like, overjoyed because everybody was hoping for an opportunity like this. And um, basically, I just felt like, you know, the the sky had opened for me because I was getting to write this story. And I think that it is such a vibrant story. And it's a murder. Yes, it's a grisly murder. And it's tragic. But there is so much inspiration in this story that I just could not have stopped myself from writing it. So basically, I was invited to write and um, thrilled to get the opportunity. Now, in the in the beginning of this book, we, we talk about Cynthia Albrecht, this larger-than-life character, executive chef for Penske's race team, uh, 
and this is in May 1992. So tell us, Margie, who Cynthia Albrecht was. Tell us a little bit as you write in the book who she was, and then introduce her two best friends, Sandra Fink and Rebecca Miller. Okay, so Cynthia Albrecht, from the beginning, should have been a tragic story. She grew up in Hialeah, which is basically the slums in in Florida, and she had alcoholic parents and a very abusive life, and she was destined by fate to go nowhere. But this girl had a lot of spunk, and she was determined that she would not stay there in that in that gutter. And so through her own efforts, she pulled herself up. She got a job. She got out of her parents' house. She eventually met Michael Albrecht at a, a racing venue and fell in love, and he moved her to Milwaukee where he was involved as a, a race car mechanic. So she was she was born to tragedy, but she was the kind of woman who would not be kept down. She loved, loved, loved water sports, and she would get out there and she would try anything. And she was just so feisty, and people loved her, and she loved people. And so that developed her, and when she got involved in the racing business, um, she started out as a, a sous chef, but she had so much cooking talent that she worked her way up to the the executive chef for Roger Penske. Roger Penske was the pinnacle. Everybody wanted to work for Roger Penske. So um, she was the kind of woman who adored people. I mean, in, in one situation, the girls were driving to work, and Roger Penske said, never, ever, ever be late. But there was an injured squirrel, and Cindy stopped to help the squirrel. And she felt that powerfully about an animal in distress, and the people that she met just adored her. I mean, they called her Ellie Mae because she had such a huge heart and was kind to everybody, and it didn't matter what team they were on. She would make sure that nobody went hungry. So uh, people were just attracted to her, and she was the darling of the race. You know, Indy 500, the gasoline alley, for decades, women weren't allowed there, but she was. So uh, anyway, working for for Penske, she met um, Sandy Fink and Becca Miller. These were her two best friends. And the three women ran the hospitality tent for the Penske team. Um, Sandy was a Barbie doll. I mean, she was just, you know, this gorgeous blonde girl who um, had had her own talents, and she was very organized, and she could do, you know, delightful desserts. And um, Becca, you know, was was just, you know, this jazzy little bright person who everybody adored, and everybody called them the girls. In the racing circuit, they are still the girls. Now, they're not 20 anymore, but they are the girls, and people just love them. And they played practical jokes. They did drive-by fruitings, um, just having fun all the time. And so they were in the big middle of racing, and their husbands were all IndyCar mechanics, and they were best friends and just having a wonderful, wonderful time, the time of their lives. And people adored them. And then, of course, uh, tragedy struck. As you know, this is a, this is a murder 
and uh, it's a gruesome murder. And if you read the description of what this killer did to her, you know, your stomach just kind of crumbles because you know, who would have the right to take such a, a bright and vibrant life? So this person, this self-made person, Cindy Albrecht, um, was was destined for tragedy. She brought herself up to the heights of glory, and then it was taken from her. Now, you talked about uh, when she met Michael Albrecht, she fell in love, but then she found out that he was already married and he had other children. In this developing relationship, she you, you, like her personality is that she's not a homewrecker, but tell us about that relationship with Michael and with the daughters, what kind of relationship they did have, she did have with those daughters, and then some of the things that were characterized in the relationship uh, in terms of socializing with her career and and his participation in that socializing or not. Okay, so she left her entire life in Florida and moved to Milwaukee with Michael. And he did find out, she did find out that he was married and had three daughters, and she was willing to walk away. She said she wasn't going to destroy the marriage, but, you know, obviously he was already an adulterer, and he said, oh, well, I'm divorcing her, I want you. So uh, he, he did divorce his wife. And when the girls came to visit in Indianapolis, well, Cindy would drop everything. No matter what she was doing, she would drop everything, and she would spend time with the girls, and she would take them shopping and to events and just dedicate her whole time to them. But he did not. They were his daughters, but, you know, he didn't want them to inconvenience him. So he just uh, did his own thing and, and let Cindy take care of the girls. Um Socially, he was with the Dick Simon team. The Dick Simon team was not the star in the East at the Indy 500 or any Indy car circuit. It was a lower-rated team, but he was the chief mechanic, and he made a good salary. Um, 75000 a year you know, back in the 90, early 90s was a huge salary, um, and he was jealous. Uh, Cindy, uh, Cindy's friends, Becca and Sandy, started taking Cindy under their wing. She was kind of a, a plain Jane. Uh, she wore, you know, men's shirts and jeans, and, and basically she wore her clothes to cover her. And they said, no, you, you should wear beautiful clothes. And they, they taught her to wear beautiful clothes and to do her hair and her makeup. And she just brightened up and got some self-esteem, which did not go well with her husband because he basically wanted to control her. So Marlboro Pinsky had a lot of money and a lot of huge events, and he started saying, I can't go. I work for Dick Simon. It's against the rules, which was not true. But whenever there was an event, everybody else went with their spouse, and she had to go alone because he was controlling like that and was just uh, passive-aggressive. You know, I'm going to make sure you don't have a good time because I'm not. That kind of attitude. Um, So... Uh, she would she would go by herself, and she was still, you know, bright and sparkly, and she never let on that anything was bothering her. Uh, occasionally she would show up with 
bruises and other team members would say, you know, is he hurting you? And she'd say, no, 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 a hundred times. But it was obvious that he was mentally abusing her. And uh, she was afraid of him. And, and he would he would come by their area to talk to her and everybody would just stiffen up because he was a mean person. I mean, he even abused other racers or other uh, mechanics So and talked down to them. So um, anytime the girls were together and he came around, she would signal, no, you can't talk about this. No, you can't talk about that. You can't talk about us having fun because he wouldn't like it. Yeah. Did that answer your question? Yeah. The She had an operation in 1989, and this will become important later for our listeners. Tell us what that operation was to correct in 1989. Okay, so she had a a severe case of TMJ, which means her jaws were misaligned. And this is a very painful condition. So Cindy grew up in a lot of pain. This misalignment causes um, severe headaches, neck aches, um, trouble with chewing. It just, it's unbearable sometimes, the pain. People get migraines from it. And she just had to endure it because her parents were alcoholics. They were poor. They couldn't do anything about it. And she just had to tough it out. You know, uh, pain or no pain, you know, she, she went to work whether she felt like it or not. And she just endured it. But in 89, she had a a surgery that's called, I think, a Lafort ostotomy, if I can remember correctly, to correct that, and the jawbone was rebuilt with a cadaver jaw and titanium and put together so that she quit having all that pain and it aligned her jaw and it made her more beautiful. And Michael claimed that he paid, uh, depending on who tells the story, anywhere from twenty-five to $40,000 for this surgery. Uh, of course, other people say, no, it was covered by insurance, and he just said that to make himself look good. But um, it was, a, it was a, a very life-transforming surgery as far as her personal comfort, her appearance, and her happiness. Uh, he, as I said, took, took full credit, but um, a number of people seriously doubt that he ever paid anything for that surgery. Oh, really? Interesting. Now, what aspects of their relationship, uh, even though you write that Cindy was not a person to bring, uh, certainly not to bring anything to work, any kind of her problem, marital problems to work, and she was, as you write, uh, had a strained relationship with her parents that was just healing. You say her mother was alcoholic and the relationship with her father was shaky. Um, You talked about what she confided in Sandy and Becky. What did she say about the relationship? You talk about uh, unusual and inappropriate, in her mind, sexual uh, interests. Tell us what she did confide in these women about. Okay, well, first of all, uh, Michael, as I said, was had her literally bound. He wanted her at work or at home, period. He wanted total control. But, of course, he was out at the strip clubs himself doing as he pleased. Um, but at home, he demanded really gross sexual practices. These women were working outside in the sun, in the heat, for 
14, 16 hours a day, and she would come home dirty and sweaty and gritty, and he wouldn't want her to take a shower. He, he would want to have sex. And during her menstrual period, he would want oral sex, and it really sickened her, these practices that he was demanding, um, that it was a change in his behavior. But the more she hated it, the, the more he demanded it. And there didn't seem to be anything she could do about it. She, she couldn't please him, and um, anything he asked of her, she tried to do, but she was just sickened and didn't want him touching her. And eventually she moved into the other bedroom and finally split up from him and got her own apartment. Now, you say at the apartment, again, she doesn't believe or has had no experiences with actual violence, but there's this psychological abuse that she even tells her friends about. Absolutely. Um, but you talk about access to that apartment, uh, how far it is from where she was living with Michael, but also about the cats, the situation with the cats and the key. Tell us about that. Oh, sure. The apartment was just like five minutes away from her former home, and it was a second-floor apartment um, backed against um, a lot where you could look out and see trees, but there was a supermarket on the other side. And she kept the cats, uh, Billy and Willie. They both loved the cats. So she gave him a key so that when she was out of town, he could come and take care of the cats. However, he came and took care of the cats and started prying into her personal mail and her personal business and raising Cain about things he saw that he thought were suspicious. She would get a card from a friend and he you know, growled that something was going on and uh, obviously get very severe with her. A number of people had seen him yelling at her and making her cry and she still denied that anything was awry with that situation except possibly to Becky and Sandy. So they knew, I mean, they could sense and they could see that she was doing everything she could to hide it. She was, everything is fine, just fine. But it came to the point that she could not allow him in her apartment. She could not allow him access to her life, and she changed the lock. However, whenever she was home, she would open the back patio door so that the cats could look out because she loved the cats, but couldn't let them outside they were inside cats now you take us to the situation uh in october of 1992 and you take us to uh, the final race and where pete uh, pardon me uh, pete twitty and cindy meet and and their relationship changes forever but you also talk about just preceding this where cindy's career is and where Michael's career is at right at that time and then tell us about the October 12th final race of the season okay so the Indianapolis 500 in 1992 um, Dick Simon was running two cars and he could barely afford to run his team at all and he did not win anything in that race and he ended up firing several mechanics including Michael so Michael was not making $75,000 anymore. He went to work for another team where he was part-time working $100, making $100 a day um, as a, a man who had been a chief mechanic. 
So his job on the Dick Simon team was, if you ever watch the pit crew and the guys come out to change the tires, he always changed right. that left front tire. You know, he was, he was that, that guy that people keyed in on because it was the hardest to get into. So he was, you know, Mr. Chief Mechanic, Mr. King, and then all of a sudden he was the low life. Her career, Penske, of course, was um, growing and doing better, and she had been to visit uh, Roger Penske's yacht. The entire team went to visit, and he had just asked her at the end of the race season to come and be the chef on his yacht. So this was a huge, huge promotion, and she would be able to go to Florida and, you know, be with her parents, and she was falling in love with Pete Twitty. They'd worked together for over a year, nothing special between them until the end of the race season. They were at Skeleton Lake in Canada, and just um, they literally fell in love. They were looking at each other over the fire and literally connected as soulmates, and uh they were. She was going to go to Florida. She was going to live with Pete. She was going to have a great relationship. As soon as her divorce was final, her life was coming up, and she was going to work for Roger Penske's yacht, and that was that just made her happier than anything. You said that there was a conversation between Pete and and Cindy, and so and talking about that he thought it was odd that he, she didn't want him to go to Albuquerque and help her with the move. Tell us about those details. It was almost like she sensed something and was protecting him. Um, Pete Twitty is an amazing man. I mean, when you when you read the book, you'll realize this guy, he was a giant in, in all ways. But he's also very, very sensitive, and he could sense something in her that seemed dark so when she went to go home she wouldn't let him drive her to the airport and she just say kept saying you know don't worry it's all going to be over and he'd say well what is going on is is michael going to come after me is he going to come up behind me is he going to do something and she'd say no it's going to be okay but he had this sense that something dark was going on he said it was the kind of sensitivity he had had since childhood and he had a feeling that something was bad and he he wanted so badly to go with her and she kept refusing and saying no everything's fine everything's great he didn't have a chance and when he got home to florida the first thing he did was start calling her and got no answer it was it was too late she got home from the race, and she was gone. But he had a sensitivity that that was going to happen. And she uh, left the, the Allenser Jr. party, the Halloween party. She was a party girl. She would have stayed till the last minute. But that night she said, no, I just want to go to the hotel and be with you, which was not like her at all. And so right. Pete understood that something was very wrong, but she would not talk about it. Tell our audience about the details of the divorce that was to be final the 26th and, and that as a couple they had worked on. Um, what was Michael's position on this? But tell us about the details about the pending divorce, October 26th. According to the lawyer, this was an amicable divorce. It was just paperwork. They had agreed to divorce. 
They had agreed, agreed on the division of the property. It was a simple matter of waiting, you, you know, the 60 or 90 days, whichever it was at that time, I'm sorry, um, to, for the papers to be finalized, and then the divorce was complete. So Monday, October 26th, was a weekday, and that was the day of the divorce. Michael had argued that it was the 24th, but of course you can't be divorced on the 24th, which is a Saturday, because the court's not open. And repeatedly, he came to her during this time and said, can we talk? Please take me back. I just want to be with you. And Sandy and Becca heard these conversations, and Cindy just kept saying, no, you know, we're, we're getting divorced. So uh, the 24th was the day, which happened to be the day after she disappeared. So she disappeared the night before the divorce was final. And uh, it appears that maybe it was not as amicable as the lawyer thought. Let's talk about when Cindy gets home, the phone calls she makes. You talk about calling Sandy and wishing her happy birthday. Tell us about that timeline around what time was that. And then you talk about what Cindy does after that phone call and then what Twitty does at around 1045. Tell us about this um, turn of events Um, and the timeline. Cindy flew in from Indianapolis, and she was exhausted. She went home. She took a shower. She called Sandy to wish her happy birthday, and Sandy said she almost didn't answer because she was exhausted herself. And they just chatted, and, you know, it's your birthday, and I just wanted to call. And it was just a cheerful conversation, and Cindy was happy because her divorce was about to be final and she was going to pack up her life and go do something else. And she called her mother. She had bought a heart necklace and given half the heart to her mother and half to herself. And this was a symbol of renewing their relationship because they had been estranged. There had been some, some bad blood between them. I mean, it was so bad that Cindy's first husband that she had was a teenager beat her brutally into the hospital and her mother came in and saw her beaten like that and said what did you do to him to make him do this to you so mother was not very nurturing but now as a woman with self-esteem she was renewing that relationship and she talked to her mother and she said that she was waiting for pete to call and then she was going to get some sleep so pete got into indianapolis about around 10 So we're talking about just a a 30, 45-minute time period here. Pete got in, called her, no answer. And he called again, no answer. And he kept leaving messages thinking, well, you know, did she not get in yet? Is she asleep? What's going on? And he called and called and called and called. And he finally said, Cindy, I know something has happened or, or you would have called me. You know, maybe I hope we're going to laugh about this someday. But there was no answer. So right around 9.30, 10 p.m., she was gone. Now, you talk about the next day, Sandy and Becky, they're supposed to meet up with Cindy for a meeting, talking about money. This was the end of the season. So they had planned to get together on Monday. She also had an appointment with her divorce attorney, um, and there was, 
we didn't mention that uh, this extreme sports interest that Cindy had had knocked out all of her teeth. Uh, a dentist that also was involved with the indie racing said, listen, when you get back to Indianapolis, I'll fix you up. So yeah. there was that a, a, some appointment possibility that she would be seeing a doctor. Lots of things to do on that Monday. Pete is very worried, contacts the Sandy and Becky. What do they all decide to do? Um, at first, Sandy said, you know, when you get home from the race, there's all this to do. She had to go see about her divorce. She may just be busy today. I'm sure she'll call you later. But they didn't get an answer either. And so uh, Tuesday morning when nobody had heard from Cindy, Sandy and Becky got some coffee and donuts and went over to go over the books because Cindy had the kind of integrity that at a moment's notice, she could account for every penny of Penske's money. They gave them those girls thousands of dollars in cash to buy all the groceries because they were feeding hundreds of people. So she had a bag with that money, and the girls were coming to look at the receipts, look at the cash, make sure everything balanced, turn it in. They got to the apartment, and her truck was there. And they were like, she's just not answering the phone. But she didn't answer the door either. So they went up the back stairs, and it was like instantly they felt this darkness. I mean, the apartment was dark, and the cats were crying, and there was no music, and they instantly knew that something was wrong. Plus, the door was off on the patio. So Sandy opened the door, and they kind of looked in, and they called to her, and they didn't get an answer. And they were just freaked out and scared, and then they realized somebody could be in there. So they went back to Becca's car, and they got uh, a, a can of mace and an umbrella because if somebody was in there, they were going to poke him and, and spray him. I mean, that was that was their big plan. They went back into the apartment, and it was just like, like this deadly silence. And, of course, Cindy was a vibrant person. There wouldn't be any deathly silence in her apartment. They went through the apartment, and she was gone. Even the bathroom, she had this ocean blue curtain, and Becca said, I can't look behind it, I can't look behind it. And so Sandy said, I'll look behind the curtain if you'll look in the bedroom. And they were hoping to find her, but she wasn't there. So they called the police, and uh, Dane Morgan came and got them out of the apartment because he thought it might be a crime scene. And then this detective, Steve Turner, showed up, and he treated it like it was not a crime scene. He was touching absolutely everything. Uh, Becca wanted to smoke. He said, don't go outside. Just you know, use this ashtray here. So it was like you had two officers there, one acting like, oh, my goodness, this is a crime scene, and this other guy saying, oh, she's probably out you know, doping or boozing or with a guy, no big deal. But the detective was Michael Albrecht's best friend. So she was gone, and they just thought it would be like TV. Okay, uh, we reported her, somebody go find her, and it didn't happen. So they started calling friends. Racers came from around the country to Indianapolis. It was late October, we had freezing rain, it was cold, it was miserable. They were out all hours, day and night, going through woods, going through ditches, looking for her for weeks. 
they loved her that much. They just dropped their lives. They came to Speedway to look for her. Yeah. Let's use this as, as an opportunity, Margie and Larry, to stop for a second to talk about our sponsor, which is ShipStation. When you're selling online, getting your orders out can be a real pain. Time-consuming, expensive, so many carriers to choose from. How do you know you're making the best choice? That's why you need ShipStation.com. It's the fastest, easiest, and most affordable way to manage and ship your orders. ShipStation helps you get your orders out quickly, save money on shipping costs, and keep your customers happy. No matter what you're selling, Amazon, where you're selling, Amazon, Etsy, your own website, ShipStation brings all your orders into one simple interface, making them really easy to manage from any device, even your cell phone. ShipStation works with all of the major carriers, including USPS, FedEx, UPS, even Amazon Fulfillment, so you can compare and choose the best shipping solution for you and your customer. They even offer big discounts on shipping costs. Now, any business can access the same postage discounts that are usually reserved for large Fortune 500 companies. You'll always know that you're getting the best deal. No wonder ShipStation is the number one choice of online sellers. You'll ship more in less time with the best rates available. And right now, True Murder listeners can try ShipStation free for 60 days when you use promo code TRUEMURDER. There's absolutely no risk. You can start your free trial without even entering your credit card info. Just visit ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in True Murder. That's ShipStation.com, then enter promo code True Murder. ShipStation.com. Make ship happen. We uh, were speaking about what was happening next with the Michael Albrecht. Um, Margie, what we didn't mention was that immediately Sandy, Pete, and Becky believe Michael is, is responsible for Cindy's disappearance. And as such, you write that Sandy decides to call Michael at Euro Motorsports. What is said in that conversation? What does she believe she already knows? And what does she ask him? And what's his response? So um, the the girls called Michael, and they were just, you know, all chit-chatty. They didn't say that they were in Cindy's apartment. They were just like, hey, we're looking for Cindy. wonder if you've seen her. And he said, no, she's not home from, from California yet. And uh, I don't know when she'll be back. He he denied knowing anything about her. So, um, sorry. So he denied knowing anything, but immediately he was home packing up to go to on a trip to Florida. You know, he he was called into the police station. He was questioned, and he was he was assigned to do a a lie detector test. He agreed to do it, but then he took off to Florida. Uh, Pete Twitty flew in from Florida, took the first flight he could get, went to the police station, and was raising questions. He didn't know that he was talking to Steve Turner, who was Michael's best friend, and Turner just said, oh, she's got lots of boyfriends, and he said, no, she's she's worked for me for a year. She's not doping. She's not out seeing boyfriends. Something's wrong, uh, but Michael was just taking off to Florida to have a 
have a vacation. So all these people were looking for her, and Twitty even went to hire a private investigator. They were all looking for her for three weeks. And, of course, after three weeks, they found her, not they, but some hunters found what was left of her. And then it got to be a really sad story. Now let's introduce uh, Larry Sells, Prosecutor Larry Sells. Uh, Larry, um, I know that you don't come into this story just for a little bit, but tell us, um, as you know, you've, as the audience would know, and I know that you reviewed absolutely everything. Tell us a little bit about this private eye, Campbell. What was his background and the kinds of things he did and basically the investigation that Sandra, Becky, and Pete Twitty undertook on their own. Tell us a little bit about your background, Larry, where you were at that time, and tell us a little bit about this Private Eye Campbell and what he found. Well, well, Don Campbell was a retired homicide detective with the Indianapolis Police Department and was very well known, very highly respected. He is a former Marine and a tough guy, had a grisly appearance, and you didn't give him it. So, what happened? Sorry, Pete, you were uh, saying he was. Pete Twitty got information about uh, uh, Mr. Campbell, uh, possibility you could hire him as a private investigator to, to help find Cindy or find out what happened to her. He went to see him. He had uh, money uh, that, uh, in part, Penske had provided for hiring a private detective. It was about $10,000. It's a funny story. He sat down with Don Campbell, and uh, Don, Don told him, uh, listen, I'm going to take this wherever it leads me, even if it's to you, Mr. Twitty. And yeah. Pete says, well, I'm not concerned. And he said, well, it'll cost you $10,000 up front, Uh Pete put the money on the table. He, he blinked, and the money was gone. And, and Don Campbell was hired, and he and uh, Sandy Fink went to Milwaukee, started interviewing people, uh, even uh, people that had already been talked to by either the Speedway Police Department or Indianapolis uh, or Indiana State Police, and even the FBI was involved in interviewing uh, potential witnesses. And they talked to all of them and uh, did a pretty thorough job and competent investigation. I had access to all that information during the course of the, you know, my involvement in the case. That's how Don got involved. I'll tell you something. I remember reading about this case uh, when Cindy disappeared. I mean, I just like a lot of other people in Indianapolis was a, uh, an avid fan of IndyCar racing. And uh, when, when I read about it, my first thought was, you know, this sounds like the husband's involved. But sure. I didn't read much about that or hear or see anything on television about it for a while until the, her body was found. And that, uh, re, that brought more attention to, to what had occurred and still thought, well, the husband's probably involved. But I wasn't actually consulted or involved in the case at that time and I was working on my other cases I had some death penalty cases I was trying and several other murders but in the fall of 1996 Lieutenant Bill Jones from the Speedway Police Department who was a lead investigator in the case 
you know, Sergeant William Kruger with the Indiana State Police and some of their uh, co-workers uh, got permission to and came to the prosecutor's office and consulted with me and another deputy prosecutor. I'll tell you, the first thing I saw in that case were the gruesome crime scene photos where Cindy was found and her body was found and the barbaric nature in which she had been killed. And I just thought, you know, how could anybody do that to a fellow human being? And I, I decided at that point, man, if you give me any evidence here, I'm going to go after the person responsible for this, and we're going to make them pay for it. That's how I got involved. How did you go about this? It was a change of, of, of prosecution at the county level, and so you became involved, as you mentioned. How did you undertake this, again, basically, essentially a reinvestigation to be able to prosecute Michael Albrecht? Well, the detectives, Bill Jones and Bill Kruger, had done an outstanding job of gathering all the evidence they could get, telephonic communications. And, of course, that was pretty much limited to phone records. We didn't have cell phones back then. And also uh, bank records, insurance records, and all the hundreds of witnesses that had been interviewed. I had access to all that information, all the crime scene evidence. But you'll have to understand that uh, although there was some evidence in her apartment, really there was no no evidence uh, that the person that committed this crime had actually been there and done anything. There was evidence of Cindy being there, and there was evidence of a this bag containing funds left over from the last race, Laguna Seca race, that uh, the girls were going to go go through and then uh, eventually submit that to Roger Penske's uh, Marble Penske team. Uh, there was about over $2,000 that was supposed to be in that bag. Well, that right. money wasn't there. It was missing. And only a few people, the Sandy, Becca, Cindy, and uh, Pete Twitty, and a couple other people at Marble Penske were aware of that. There was one other person that was aware of it, and that was Michael Albrecht, the husband. Well, that money was gone, but nothing else was taken out of the apartment. Her car keys were there, or truck keys, I should say. Her purse with money and credit cards, other valuables in the apartment weren't even touched. The only thing taken out of that apartment was the money from that uh, briefcase and Cindy's body, which evidently was wrapped in a comforter that was missing from the apartment, and she must have been wearing a her favorite uh, T-shirt, a large, extra-large Garth Brooks T-shirt that she often wore after she took a shower and uh, reclined on the couch for the evening. That was what was gone from her apartment. What about uh, what did you find about life insurance policies for both of them? Okay, uh, you know I want to. Go back to the crime scene again. There were two crime scenes here. One where the body was actually recovered. Uh, there had been some inclement weather, as as uh, and very cold weather, rainy cold weather. The body was pretty well reserved, but there were any uh, forensic evidence or trace evidence that normally you might be able to find at a crime scene. 
had been washed away by the weather. And, of course, the head was not there. Now, you ask about life insurance. When she and Michael actually separated and she filed for divorce, she uh, thought for all intents and purposes her other divorce, her other life insurance would, uh, would be ended because she didn't make the premium payments on it. And she got her own life insurance and uh, eventually named her father as a beneficiary of that policy. What she didn't know, and probably would have caused her considerable concern, is that Michael Fink kept paying, or Michael Fink, I apologize, uh, Michael Fink, Michael Albrecht kept paying those premiums every month. Religiously, he made those premiums. That becomes very important later on. Why would he pay premiums on his soon-to-be ex-wife's life insurance policy? It's a term life insurance policy, which means that the only way any money can be realized from that is if the person insured dies, and then the individual that's a beneficiary of that policy uh, would get those funds. And Michael, of course, was the beneficiary of that policy. And that's where that stood. But I'll tell you, when I started reviewing this case, uh, and there were volumes of materials uh, and records, but when I started reviewing it, just different things came up that just all of it pointed toward Michael Albrecht. It starts with the fact that the divorce was to be final December the first, October 26th, and she goes missing that very evening before. Now, that could be a coincidence, I guess, but it's a very uh, perplexing coincidence. Uh, Michael Albrecht, as you just heard from, uh, from Margie, uh, and Margie did a great job of, of telling you about, about everything, and I appreciate that. And you probably understand now why I selected her to write. I couldn't write where the darn but Margie can not only write, she can talk, and she explained things very well. I certainly appreciate it. I, I'll be forever indebted to her for writing this book and doing such a great job on it. And everybody that's read it, that, that are, are friends or were friends of Cindy, uh, feel the same way. Well, Michael Albrecht was questioned. He was supposed to show up for a polygraph the next day. Uh, based upon the information he provided, the the, the the main substance of which is that he wasn't here in Indianapolis when it happened. He was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and he had people that could could support that, corroborate that. Well, he leaves for Florida the next day, doesn't show up for the polygraph. Everybody else that knows Cindy, that cares about her, everybody in the racing community come from everywhere to try to look for her. And where is he? He's vacationing in Florida. He knows at that point she's missing. He's been told by law enforcement. But this woman that he had uh, tried to convince him just a few days before at the last race in Laguna Seca to come back to him, and he, he loves her. He wants her back. But what's he do when she shows up missing? He goes to Florida. You know, he didn't give a darn about her. Plus, he knew that she was dead. You talk about and write about the reason why 
this took so long to actually take him six years to be able to take him to trial is that Michael Albrecht had an alibi and that alibi witness that alibi was investigated and seemed to check out at least in terms of the the prosecutor at the time not willing to to prosecute to move for move ahead with charges in this investigation that you conduct along with detectives and with uh, detective jones what tell us the story of a bill filter and how that story changes i want to do a little bit of a lead into that if you don't mind sure you know, I I wasn't consulted on this case till the fall of 1996, and all the right. work had pretty much been done. And I was aware of Bill Filter's uh, involvement as an alibi witness for Michael Albrecht, and uh, Michael Albrecht's ex-wife in Milwaukee was also an alibi witness, and Bill Filter was a longtime friend of Michael's. But you know. I looked at the things that I thought, you know, I know the alibi was an obstacle, but I looked at the things that I thought pointed to the guilt of Michael Albrecht as a person. Because in my opinion, if, if, if I could show that he committed the murder, then I could deal with that alibi first. But I need, need to be able to convince in my own, be convinced in my own mind and be able to convince others that he's the one that did it. And I saw that evidence in the files, and I can't believe no other prosecutor before I looked at it was willing to to dig in there and go through that that stuff. I, I just in '96 alone, I tried two death penalty cases. I tried some other murders in 1997 while I was still reviewing this. I tried 14 murder cases, but I just I was so affected by the gruesomeness of this murder and what a beautiful person Cindy Albrecht was that I decided, you know, whatever it took, I was going to search through these files, and if the evidence was there, I was going to charge the person that was responsible for it. Now, I was on a a show called On the Case with Paula Zahn about this case, the Cindy Albrecht murder, and she asked me, uh, Larry, why do you think uh, no other prosecutor was willing to file this case? Uh, either the prosecutor in Newton County in northern Indiana where the body was found or the prosecutor in Marion County in Indianapolis, Indiana, where the crime actually started. So why wouldn't they file this case? I said, Clint Eastwood once said in one of his Dirty Harry movies that a man's got to know his limitations. I guess they knew theirs. I know that sounds pretty cocky, but you got to have that attitude in this business. I'm normally uh, not that type of person, but when I get involved in a criminal case, I'm pretty focused, and and I feel confident once I've made a decision that I'm convinced that a person's guilty, that I'm going to do everything I can to make sure they're brought to trial and convince a jury that they did it. And that Piece by piece, I went through here. You know, I talked to you about the fact that divorce was to be final. And that he left while everybody went to Florida while everybody else was looking for a life insurance policy. I mean, that jumped out at me. The fact that <clears throat> just a few days after she went missing, Michael Albrecht's boss 
guy by the name of Antonio Ferrari. He'd just come back from Italy. Uh, right. And he, he was the owner of the Euro Motorsports team that Michael was working part-time for him. He liked Michael. Michael did a great job for him, but he couldn't afford to pay him the full salary of a, a full-time racing account. So he hired him on a part-time basis. Well, Michael, or when Ferrari got back into into the States, he read about Cindy's disappearance, and it brought up all those conversations. He remembered all those conversations he had with Michael uh, about about Michael's feelings. Michael was so distraught, and it came toward the end of September, early October, right about the time the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania race was to take place. Michael asked him if he could find somebody in the mafia that could do something permanent, in other words, kill Cindy. He said he had a $50,000 life insurance policy that he could pay that person uh, that did it. And and Antonio Ferrari put him off. Uh, He didn't know anybody in the mafia, but because of his name and I guess his connections to people in New York, Michael thought he did, but when he read about Cindy's disappearance, even though at the time when Michael was talking to him, he didn't, you know, he just, he wrote it off as a rantings of a, of a distraught, soon-to-be ex-husband, and when he read that, he went to the police and told them that. Now, that was really a significant piece of evidence. We also found out that Michael had secreted $5,000 in his father's bank account in Milwaukee that he kept there during the time the divorce was pending. Well, what do you think he did? Monday morning, October 26th, he and his father go to the bank, and he withdraws that $5,000. Well, he doesn't have to worry about sharing that with Cindy anymore. But these that's the type of information that we were collecting. Uh, all the phone calls between him and Felder, he, he hadn't really seen Del Felder for a long time. They knew each other when they were younger. But then they had reconnected in the spring of 1992. And Michael, I guess, when he became estranged from Cindy and started developing these plans to do something to her because he was so enraged over the fact that he had lost his position with with Dick Simon racing and a top job and she was doing so well with Marlboro Penske and the fact that, uh, you know, he just blamed her for the destruction of their relationship and that she was finding love somewhere else. I mean, it just consumed him and he decided, you know, during that, uh, summer fall that he was going to, he was going to do something to her. He's going to kill her or have her killed. So you also found out information, damaging information against Michael from his own brother who was a police officer. This is fascinating information in terms of what Randy does as a brother and as a police officer. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was in the summer of 92. Uh, you know, he was living in Florida at the time. His brother was a Broward County deputy sheriff in Fort Lauderdale, and he was living with a 
living with his brother and his brother's wife and family. And his brother could see Michael just self-destructing just right in front of him. Michael was just going berserk, and he was so enraged, upset, crying one moment, uh, uh, threatening uh, Cindy at other moments. And he tried to get uh, his brother to uh, find a Cuban, uh, somebody in in that area, Miami area, that could do something to Cindy when she came to uh, Florida to visit her mother in the summer. Of course, his brother said, now listen, you're just upset uh, because the fact that uh, you and Cindy are, are breaking up. Now just give it some time. Uh, and, and he just tried to talk Michael down, but, but Michael couldn't be talked down. Uh, you know, and his brother, just like Antonio Ferrari later on, his brother just kept putting him off and putting him off. And then Michael you know, was determined, uh, and you know what happened at the end. Um, now, we didn't find anything about out about uh, William Filter's involvement until we actually charged Michael Albrecht, but I had a plan in motion, and that was that... Uh, I was going to charge Michael Albrecht, get him back. At that time, he was working as a mechanic in a in a, a, a dealership, a BMW dealership, and right outside of Atlanta. And we had to extradite him back because he didn't want to come back willingly. But we got him back to Indiana, and I put the second stage of the the plan in action. I filed charges against William Filder for assisting a criminal because if Michael had committed the murder, that meant uh, William Filder was lying about the alibi. So I charged him with assisting a criminal, a lesser crime. It was a Class C felony carrying anywhere from two to eight years in prison. I got the judge to put a $100,000 bond on him. And... Uh, we uh, we went to arrest Bill Filter. We got a lawyer, and the lawyer called me and said, uh, Larry, is there anything we can do with this case? I said, well, depends on what Bill Filter's going to do. He said, I think you're going to like what he's going to do. So the lawyer and he came to Indianapolis, and uh, I sat down with Bill Filter, Gave him a grant of immunity, meaning that anything he told us, as long as he wasn't involved in the murder, would not be used against him so long as he told the truth. And he agreed to do that, and he told us some things that uh, were things we didn't know and and actually uh, helped the case considerably. You write about what he says, and and it is incredible that he keeps this secret for five years, more than five years. But in the end, he confesses, you write, and he states the preparation that Michael Albrecht did for him and the, the request he had in the beginning and what Michael Albrecht settled for with Bill Filter. But it was especially... 
shocking and yeah, very shocking to hear the preparation and all the things that Filter said that Albrecht had instructed him to do. Tell us. Well, Filter had come to Indianapolis in May of '92 for the for the 500, and that's Indianapolis 500 mile race, and that's sort of where they they talked before that, but that's sort of where they really renewed their relationship again. Well, there had been a lot of communication between them uh, up and up through latter part of September, early October of 92. In early October, uh, Mike Albrecht asked William Filder to come to Indianapolis, which he did. And Albrecht took him to the wooded area behind Cindy Albrecht's apartment uh, from which you could actually see Cindy's balcony. Uh, and, and you could actually see into the apartment through the sliding glass doors. Wow. And he showed Filder this. And he said, Bill, uh, I want you to help me. Actually, I want you to do it. I want you to kill her. She's ruined my life, and I want you to kill her. He says, uh, now we're going to have to cut her head off because all this uh, extensive work she's had done on her jaw. He told Filder about, you know, the the titanium that was in her jaw. And, you know, if Filder had to have been there to be able to describe himself what he saw from that wooded area when he looked up to Cindy's balcony, and he had to have been told by Michael Albrecht about that titanium in her jaw to know those things, and that added to his credibility as a witness. As to why he waited so long before he ever said anything or why he waited until the threat of prosecution and uh, have to make a $100,000 bond or sit in, in jail awaiting disposition in his case, I can't tell you why he waited that long. Uh, he, he, he said that he didn't think that Michael was actually going to do it. Although when, when you're drug out to an area like that, you're told this is what's going to happen. I want you to help me do it. Uh, Filler said that he told him, he says, you're crazy. Just let this woman go. And he said uh, that later on then he, he said, although he wouldn't help him do it, that he would uh, agree to alibi for him because Albrecht had requested that he do that. You know, I don't know what's going on in his brain then, but all he's got to do is call law enforcement and let them know about it. And Cindy Albrecht's still alive today. Let's let's fast forward to October the 25th, and they're still having both personal contact and uh, tele- telephone communications between them, and they're talking about this stuff. Well, on October the, the 25th, uh, let's go one day before that, October 24th, he goes out drinking with Filler and again still tries to get him to, to help him do this, and Filler says, no, I'll buy for you. I'm not going to help you do it. On October the 25th, they don't see or talk to one another. The next time Bill Filder sees him is the morning of October 26th. is after uh, Albrecht had spent the night with his ex-wife there in Milwaukee. He drives out to Bill Filter's work site that Monday morning. 
uh, Silver sees him, walks out to him, walks out of his car, and he says, uh, Silver says, did you do it? Albrecht says, yeah, she's in the trunk. You want to see her? And Filler took a step toward the car, and I said, stopped. He said, no, I don't think so. Well, Filler telling us about that incident, I mean, that seems so real, so convincing that that actually happened, that the, the, the two things that I thought really established his credibility, even though he you know, you loathe him and what he did, the fact he didn't sure. take action. It convinced you that he's telling the truth. And he fills in other details as well, but those were two very significant parts because it, it, it let us know. We wondered how he could get to Indianapolis, uh, kill Cindy, uh, get back to Milwaukee, and the body end up in that wooded area about halfway in between. I mean, how did that happen in a eight or nine hour period? Because it's it's over four hours from Indianapolis uh, or from Milwaukee to Indianapolis. The same going back. Those are under normal conditions with normal traffic. Of course, these were in normal conditions. He was in a hurry. But he, he it it told us that what happened is he he probably strangled her in the apartment because they didn't leave any. There's no blood evidence or any evidence of any any struggle there. And he, he was a really strong guy. Strangled her, killed her, took her, carried her through that wooded area to the back of a supermarket that's right off Interstate 465 that led up to 65 and then to Milwaukee. Threw in the trunk of a car and drove back to Milwaukee. Spent the night with his ex-wife, with his with Cindy still in the trunk of that car, dead, and uh, even had sex with his ex-wife, if you can believe that. Next morning, he goes out to see Felder. Then he goes with his dad to the bank and gets the $5,000. He drives back to the wooded area just off 65. Uh, it's the Rose Lawn de Mott exit. And there's a nudist colony just a couple miles down the road from the wooded area where he dumped a body, cut off her head, probably wrapped it in that comforter that he'd taken off the bed and threw in the trunk of the car with. And, you know, he also took that Garth Brooks T-shirt and the head with him. And we believe that he may have – and he came back to Indianapolis and he left in his little BMW to drive to – to, to Florida a couple of days later. And we think he may have taken the head with him to Florida and disposed of it there. But we don't know. We just know it was never recovered. Right. The filler helped no. fill in those holes helped tell holes helped tell the story of what happened. Now you read that trial, of course, his he has four attorneys uh, one being a, a person named Finley and another um, quite successful attorney named Kamen. And it's a, what we could categorize as you know, he a vigorous. also had a congresswoman that was representing him for a while. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, Probably it was shouldn't. a vigorous defense, wasn't there? Yes, it was. 
Now you were I, uh, interested in the. Sorry, go ahead. Well, anything they could do, they did do. Fortunately, we had a judge that was really about as sharp as judge I've come across. Knew the law very well, and with the help of our uh, legal intern, who's now a prominent attorney in the Hamilton County area, just north of Indianapolis, is an extremely brilliant and gifted uh, legal mind, helped us with the legal research and responding to a lot of issues that came up, including extradition issues and uh, evidence uh, regarding a lie detector tests that somebody else had taken and not done so well on a, a potential suspect before address all the difficult, complicated traps, legal traps that were set up by the defense throughout these proceedings. So he helped us enormously, allowed the other attorney, uh, John Commons, the other deputy prosecutor, and I to focus on the witnesses and the evidence. And that was a, you know, and that was, a, that was quite a lot as well. We had two weeks of trial in this case, as, as well as a, a unbelievable hearings that lasted from the date of his arrest in uh, June of 97 until the trial in June of 98. So it was an ordeal all the way through, but you know, I, I wouldn't have had it any other way. I mean, I wanted to do it, and he had top flight lawyers, well-paid, who uh, you know, have received a claim uh, elsewhere and other cases. Uh and they did a terrific job. They did such a great job that after after the trial and the verdict, there wasn't much left for them to appeal. Yeah. Certainly, they couldn't you appeal the case based upon the ineffective assistance counsel. Mm-hmm. You write about that you were interested in the death penalty, but um, that decision was not up to you. So, again, went to the jury with a different sentence. Tell us about that sentence, and but before that, uh, what we haven't spoke too much about is the extraordinary effort of Sandra, Becky, and Pete Twitty, and this private eye, Campbell, that came that did a lot of work before the body, Cindy's body, was discovered. And you, in the book, it talks about your meeting with these people and your impression of of these people and their efforts. So tell us about that meeting with these people, their efforts, what you thought about them and then talk about uh, the death penalty versus what actually the sentence was handed down. I'll tell you, uh, the detective, uh, Bill Jones, the primary detective, uh, has teared up on television on a couple of occasions, thinking about what dear friends uh, Sandy and Becca were and, and, and Pete and how so strongly they felt about uh, Cindy and making certain justice was done to the extent that the law allows, that they pushed and pushed and pushed Bill. Not that he required much nudging because he was quite willing to do the work, but I think it gave him the motivation to go even beyond what uh, he felt like perhaps uh, needed to be done to do everything possible to see that uh, charges would be brought and uh, the person uh, tried. He couldn't get any prosecutor to listen to him, but that didn't stop him. He just kept after it, 
And back on Sandy kept after him, kept bugging him. Yeah. Bill, when's something going to happen here? Get those charges filed. They even went to the governor and uh, the state of Indiana trying to get something done. Uh, but he just gave him the cold shoulder, too. But Bill didn't. Uh, at their encouraging encouragement, and Pete was after him as well, he just worked and worked and worked, and he finally came and talked to me and John Commons about this case. He'd seen that we had won a murder case uh, just a year or so before against a, a lawyer, a criminal lawyer, that had murdered his wife, and the evidence in that case was entirely circumstantial. He felt like he had a better case than, than the one we had won. So he talked to the new elected prosecutor, Scott Newman, and Scott said, yeah, you can talk to these two guys. He came in to see us, and you know, he convinced me right away, but I still had to convince Scott Newman that there was enough evidence there to let me file it. And I told you about all the cases I was handling at the same time, I was going through all these materials, but finally Scott agreed to, to allow us to file the charges. But uh, the uh, throughout this whole ordeal, Sandy and Becca never lost their drive or will to uh, see that that their that their dear friend was avenged. And they just pushed and pushed and pushed. Now, I never met either one of them or Pete Whitty until after I filed these charges. Right. And then I couldn't stay away from them. I mean, they kept calling me, too, wanting to know what was going on at different stages. Pete Whitty invited me to Cleveland, Ohio, to a big uh, championship auto racing team uh, event there in Cleveland. And wanted me to attend, and he he uh, he just wanted me to keep him apprised of everything that was going on too. And throughout the the, the period from the time of arrest until the trial, they were involved themselves in having to give depositions or sworn testimony about what they knew. The defense has that right in the state of Indiana. They're allowed to take depositions of state's witnesses, and also Pete. Twitty had to as well, and they voluntarily complied with all that. They they wanted to do everything they could from the time she went missing, and they knew in their own minds who was responsible for it until we went to trial for six long years. They worked so hard that it was hard for either Bill Jones or myself or John Thomas to not not work hard as well regardless of other investigations or other cases we were working on. And they motivated me, I'll say that. I mean, the, the case itself and the, the, the sweetheart that Cindy Albrecht was and what had happened to her, uh, you know, the barbaric nature she was treated, all those motivated me as well. But those girls and Pete kept me on my toes too. And to this day, I, I thank them for their help, uh, and, and pushing this case as hard as they did because I mean, that assured that, that that everybody involved, at least from the prosecution standpoint, was going to do everything they could to to assure to to get justice for the for the family, friends, and for Cindy. What was the 
sentence? I mentioned that you wanted the death penalty with someone else's decision. What was the sentence? Well, I wanted the death penalty. I tried some death penalty cases, and I thought this case was a horrendous. Uh, the the injuries that were that were, that were sustained and what pain and misery Cindy had to go through. And I thought for this case, just from the circumstances of the crime, that deserves the death penalty. But there's some considerations in addition to the circumstances of the crime. For one thing, the evidence was mostly circumstantial. And it wasn't the best case uh, as far as, you know, I've walked into the courtroom and tried a lot stronger cases than this one. Uh, but this case, I thought, was had enough evidence that at least the jury ought to make a decision on guilt or innocence. That it ought to be presented to a jury. Let them hear the evidence and make the decision. Uh, but, you know, the, the elected prosecutor uh, makes a decision cons- consulting with the deputy prosecutors that are handling the case, whether or not a death, the death penalty should be, should be filed. And because it adds so much extra uh, impact and more evidence even that needs to be presented for that type of case to convince a jury who's aware at the time they're trying it that it's a death penalty case. They require even more evidence than they might in another murder case. Sure. Uh, and we didn't want to run the risk, and certainly uh, Scott Newman didn't. He thought he was running on some risk and allowed me to try the case in the first place. But he didn't want to run the risk of losing a case because the jury got hung up on the death penalty aspect. So we, we went with uh, with murder, and at that time in the state of Indiana, murder carried a maximum of uh, 60 years in prison. Uh, and a 60-year sentence in Indiana back then didn't mean 60 years in prison. Uh, an individual only had to, as long as he belonged, behaved himself in prison, only had to serve half that time or less. Yeah. Uh, the laws changed in 2014. They changed it so that they have to serve 75% of their sentence. But uh, even a 60 year maximum sentence wasn't enough in that case. But that's what we were left with. Mm-hmm. And that's what he yeah, got. I say June. June 4th, 2023, he's eligible to be out. I want to thank Not you very much. He will be. Yeah, here's he here's something another talking about talking about uh, Reverend Salt in the wound. He received four years off his sentence for educational pursuits. He got a college education. You know who paid for that? The taxpayers yeah. paid for that. We paid for him to get four years knocked off his sentence. So instead of sixty years, which is what the court gave him a six-year executed sentence, ends up actually doing 26 years for that horrible crime where he viciously murdered his wife and then beheaded her. That's not right, but that was the law, and that was the most justice we were able to get for the family. Absolutely. I tell you, I did, get even in the, I did get even in the courtroom with him a little bit. He didn't testify in the trial. Of course, uh, following it wouldn't have helped him if he had. Uh, but he was allowed to what's called allocute. I mean, you're not you know, the defendant's not under oath, but he can 
asks the judge for leniency, and he can express his feelings about the case. Well, he did that. First, he told the family, uh, you know, I'm sorry for, for your loss. He said, I've shed my share of tears, too. But I'm not guilty. It's been a huge miscarriage of justice here. He says the prosecutor uh, bought and paid for witnesses in this case, and I'm going to fight this forever to get this uh, this conviction overturned. And he looked at me when he said that about uh, buying and paying for witnesses and using perjured testimony. Well, I wasn't allowed under the law to ask him any questions. But when he finished, I just raised my hand. The judge said, uh, yes, Mr. Sells. I said, I want to ask him one question. And even though she looked at me skeptically, she said, okay, one. Well, I stood up. I pounded on the table, looking straight in the eyes. And I said, where's Cindy's head? Man, I talk about a pin drop moment. Uh, that, that courtroom was silent for a couple minutes, except for his two screechy little lawyers uh, saying, oh, we object. We obviously object. And the judge sustained my, their objection, which means, you know, I was out of luck getting an answer. But I stood there and waited. And it took a while, but he eventually said, you're asking the wrong man, sir. And by that time, I don't think that anybody in the courtroom had any question about his guilt uh, at that point. But I just, I had to do that. I had to ask him that question. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, an incredible book, and you you take us right into every aspect of the investigation, into Cindy and her friends' lives, um, into the trial itself and this successful prosecution that you were able to secure for this murderer. I want to thank you very much, uh, Larry Sells and Margie Porter. I know this is a Wild Blue Press uh, release. Uh, Margie, can you tell us how people might find out more about this book? Is there a website, Facebook page? Tell us about that, please. Um, there is there is a website for Wild Blue Press, and I will tell you, I have been reading a number of their books, and I'm very, very impressed with the quality of their yes. authors, so I'm quite honored to be working with them. Um, it's Absolutely. also available on Amazon, and I understand also Barnes & Noble online. So if you are a lover of true crime or even just a lover of people, because it is a very inspiring story. That's where yes. you'll find it. We're also on Facebook. Yes. I want to thank you very much, Larry Sells and Margie Porter. It's been fascinating. Congratulations on Race to Justice. You have a very good evening. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Good night. Right. Bye-bye. Margie?